Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Scott Shara, dad and a patient advocate, his daughter, his late daughter, whom he refers to as Our Amazing Grace, is the subject of today's interview. Very sad story, but one that needs to be shared. And Scott Shire, thank you for joining us here today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. i like to start out talking about your daughter, Grace, and, and welcoming her to the family. Let's go back uh, to the year that you welcomed her into your family and tell us about that. Uh, she was welcomed into our family in 2002. Uh, God gave us a beautiful daughter. Uh, we did not know that she had Down syndrome until she was born and what a gift she was. We named her Grace after God's grace. She didn't let us down. God didn't let us down. She she was an absolute blessing. If anybody knows anybody with Down syndrome, you know what I'm talking about. And, and Grace took it really to the limit. She was super high functioning, partly because my wife invested the time with homeschooling, she taught her how to read and write. I taught her the things dads do, like drive a car, and mm. she inherited my sense of humor, which was pretty neat. Just to give you a sense of, of grace, uh, she deer hunted with me, and then one time in the in the deer stand, this was a couple of years back, she said, Dad, I have a joke for you, and you got to consider she made this up. And so I said, well, what's your joke? And she said, where do bees go to the bathroom? I said, I don't know. Where do they go to the bathroom? And she said, the BP station. <laughs> <laughs> she was, she, she really got humor. I mean, part of me thought at some time in the future, she would be a stand-up comic and I would just be her sidekick feeding her, feeding her jokes. Cause uh, she just, she was funny. Tell us about her interest because she had varied interests in, including an interest in Elvis Presley. Oh my gosh. That's a great story. I can't tell you how she got that interest originally, but somehow she developed mm-hmm. it into, um, she was, she was quite a fan. She knew Elvis trivia better than anybody I know. At one point when she was, I think she was 14, she wrote a letter, Priscilla Presley, care of Graceland. Unbelievably, Priscilla called Grace. That's Elvis's mm-hmm. wife wow. and invited us down to Graceland. So we drove down to Graceland and had a private meeting with her and the two of them became friends they emailed each other regularly. It was, it was really a neat, a neat thing. I mean, those type of things tended to happen with grace. I mean, you never knew what exciting thing was going to happen. And, you know, I mean, you could see God's hand on her uh, all the time. She just loved unconditionally. She called me earthly dad. She had an understanding of what my role was, uh, what, what my wife's role was and compared to what, her heavenly father's role was she was a special kid i'd like to ask you one more question and it's about the blessings of a down syndrome child now i grew up with a first cousin 
uh, who was born with Down syndrome. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. But a lot of people have never had the experience. And maybe you could talk about it from a dad and from a family point of view, the blessing that God gave your family in this young lady. Sure. I'd like to give the backdrop that one thing that's happening is 67% of Down syndrome children in the United States are right now aborted, Yes, which is, it's, it's a very sad thing worldwide. It's even higher, but we're, we're progressing at a, at a terrible rate. The blessing that she'd give you, I'll, I'll tell you a story and that will help frame it. So this is when Grace was probably six or seven. My wife, my wife's name is Cindy. Cindy and I got in an argument and Grace said to us, well, aren't you supposed to forgive each other? Wow. And so we each said, sorry, but that wasn't enough for Grace. She said, well, aren't you supposed to kiss? Mm-hmm. I mean, that just is mm-hmm. so insightful. So that's the blessing. So what do I mean specifically is that she could only have that insight from God, which God's highest principle or highest command is love. You know, when Jesus was asked about the most important commandment, he said, love. And Grace did that. And she did it, you know, where she loved me when I was a jerk. She would love anybody. She never, she didn't have any hate. One of the podcast people I talked with described it as Down syndrome. People don't have any hate. And it's, it's true. Um, On my worst day, she would give me a big hug and say, I love you, dad. And that was, it was never ending. I mean, of course, that's what I miss the most. Scott, there came a time uh, late last year where Grace was hospitalized. And tell us about how that came to be. Well, we were fully prepared at home with the frontline doctor's protocol. Mm -hmm. And so Grace was on uh, vitamins well in advance of contracting COVID. Uh, We suspected she had COVID around September 28th. And at that point, the Delta variant was running rampant. So we just had, we had ivermectin and we just got her. We just assumed anytime one of us had a sniffle, it's COVID. So we'll just start ivermectin regardless. So we did that. We really didn't think anything of it. We were going to go to a wedding on October 1st and Grace was well enough to go, but we thought we'll, we'll test her with a home test just to make sure because we don't want to spread it. Then she tested positive, again, not thinking anything of it. Um, on October 6th, she could not maintain her oxygen above 90%. And unfortunately, we saw that as an emergency. And so we took her to ER and ultimately that led to the emergency room and then checking into the hospital. And I, I'll say, unfortunately, because if I would have known then what I know now, we would have still went to the emergency room, but we, with the goal of coming home with a prescription for oxygen and a steroid and Grace would be alive today. A little bit of a different angle on this because mm-hmm. people would ask, well, why did you end up in the hospital if you were on the frontline doctor's protocol? because I ended up in the hospital three days after Grace died with symptoms even worse. I dug into it after I got out and found out that there's a small percentage of the population that this will happen to regardless of advanced prep. And it's because there's a genetic disposition to clot and produce inflammation. And I I knew I had that before COVID. And so likely Grace inherited that from me. And my wife had symptoms worse than the two of us, but she always maintained oxygen in the 95 percent plus range you had a rather unique role here as a patient advocate for grace explain what that means and what was the practical application of being her patient advocate so an advocate means that 
you're in the room with the patient and you're paying attention. Uh, it doesn't mean you have medical expertise, but you're paying attention with your with all of your senses. And you know, ultimately, that advocacy led to me getting kicked out on October 10th. Grace's first day was October 7th. We were in the emergency room on the 6th and her first full day was the 7th. And it just led to my specific advocacy led to me challenging the things that were were wrong. And ultimately, they didn't like that, which led to me being taken out. And I can give you many, many examples, but one that I think is is super important because it, it shows you a technique that the hospital uses to justify what they do relative to ventilators. And yes. this was on the, the morning of October 9th. Grace was hungry. Uh, you know, at that point she had a BiPAP mask on, so she couldn't feed herself. So I ordered food. I started feeding her. A nurse comes running in and says, you can't do that. And I said, what's the reason? And she said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85%. And so I processed that for about 20 minutes. And I thought, I, this cannot be. When we were in the ER, she was just on a regular cannula and she was in the 95% plus. And now she's on a BiPAP and she's only at 85 I had all my COVID materials in the room because I suspected I would catch COVID while I was in the room with Grace. And one of the things I had was my own oxygen meter. So I put it on Grace's finger and it read 95%. Mm. So I called the nurse back in and asked her if my meter was accurate. And she said it was. And so then I asked, why is my meter reading 10 points higher than your meter? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. And so then I said, if you know that, why don't you proactively change the leads out every three to four hours or whatever it takes to produce an accurate reading, given this is the primary statistic you're using to measure the recommendation for my daughter's care. And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful you caught this. So this is a role of an advocate. That's an exact example. I mean, you got to be paying attention. So then, you know, what's happened since Grace died is I have several hundred hours of research into what's going on. And one of the trails that took me on was the money. And so you could see how, why they would do something like this. Why would they purposely reduce the oxygen level through faulty equipment? When I got Grace's bill that was sent to Medicaid, I found out that in spite of my challenge, they only changed out those leads three times during the seven days Grace was in the hospital. And the billed cost to Medicaid was only $78 a piece. So that's ridiculous. Why aren't you doing that? And so what I believe is the case is they are so in tune with pushing to get a patient on a ventilator because it's about a $300,000 payday and they can justify a ventilator through arbitrarily lower oxygen levels that those records then when a family gets the records after their loved one dies, the hospital has the audit trail showing the oxygen levels are arbitrarily low. So then they justify the ventilator and it's all a bunch of lies. And yet you were very concerned about their push for a ventilator. We know that very few people seem to get off of them alive. So this push is contrary to what the stated purpose of a hospital would be, which would be to save people's lives and make them healthy. Did anybody talk to you about that? Absolutely. I mean, we got wise to ventilators on October 8th. Mm. I went into the hospital with Grace with, I, I'll call it the ventilator paradigm that I believe was unknowingly pushed by President Trump. So when 
COVID first came out, he made the declaration that, you know, we, we're, we have a ventilator shortage. We're going to convert factories to produce mm-hmm. ventilators. So, you know, I walked in the hospital thinking, well, a ventilator is a tool mm-hmm. and didn't think Grace needed one. And in fact, she never needed one. But on October 8th, a doctor came in and said, you're going to need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. That's the time I got educated. So I started asking some questions. Ultimately, I, I had them retake the blood test that he was suggesting for the reason and the blood test was faulty and they retook it and she was fine. So we dodged that ventilator bullet. But then through that process of asking him questions, I learned that, my gosh, this thing is, this is no good. We're not going to put Grace on a ventilator. He was close to being honest. He said only 20% of people walk out alive when they're put on a ventilator. And the fact is it's more like 15% or less. And the, that, small group of people that do walk out alive, most of them die in the first year because of damage the ventilators done to their lungs. So at that point, Cindy and I changed our perspective on ventilators. I mean, Grace was not going to go on a ventilator. And the hospital, subsequent to that event, asked us four different times for permission, an advanced permission, uh, that as Cindy was the medical power of attorney, they wanted her to sign off with an advanced permission that just in case Grace needed a ventilator, that we'd be giving this pre-approval to the hospital. And we denied that four different times because just in case to them, I mean, Grace would have been on a ventilator with 100% certainty if we would have given that pre-approval. The Ceiling Show Unleashed podcast, we're talking with dad, Scott Shara, about his daughter, Amazing Grace. And we'll come back on the other side and continue the conversation. Online at ceilingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with Scott Shara, a dad, a patient advocate for his daughter, Grace. We're talking about this horrible experience that she had in a hospital. So, Scott, I want to talk a little bit more about you being removed and then your daughter, Grace's sister, Jessica, being substituted as an advocate. You mentioned that you were removed by armed guards. What was the conversation that you had with these guards? That sounds outrageous to me. At 7 o'clock in the morning on October 10th, which was a Sunday, the head nurse came in with an armed guard and said, you need to leave immediately. I said, what is that based on? And she said, number one, you've been shutting off the alarms at night. So I defended that situation because the nurses trained me how to shut off the non-essential alarms. Mm -hmm. They would not listen to my request, which was 
I wanted the alarms to go off at the nurse's station versus the room because Grace needs to get sleep. They would not do that. And so then they trained me how to shut off the non-essential alarms because of how many times they're going off and how long it takes them to respond. Then the second thing she said was, the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. And of course, you know, I gave you a couple of examples as to why. I mean, I was challenging things. It wasn't a, you know, that I mean challenging them. I mean, they just had an attitude that uh, you're just a dad. We know what we're doing. We're giving 110%. It was an overall arrogant attitude that uh, was part of the culture there. And then third, which is laughable, they said, we suspect you have COVID. Well, no kidding, I have COVID. You're the ones who told me I was going to get it. And if you were honestly concerned, why didn't you ask me? Why didn't you test me? And I had COVID uh, at one o'clock in the afternoon, the first day we were in the hospital, I had a fever already and I tested myself, I tested positive. But that's a somewhat of a minor piece in this overall scheme. But then we had 44 hours without an advocate. We had to hire Grace's special needs attorney to negotiate with the hospital to get my daughter, Jess, in as a replacement advocate. Cindy had COVID, so she couldn't come in. So why are we negotiating against something that Grace had a right to under the Americans with Disabilities Act? It's a rhetorical question, obviously. It's a very frustrating thing. During that window of 44 hours, they ratcheted up a sedation drug that they put Grace on seven times. They had put her on Presidex starting October 9th, unbeknownst to us. And that's a drug that the package insert says to use no more than 24 hours. They started her on it. Uh, you know, I only can see it as pure laziness, but I, as I've gotten into the research, now I see it as, I think it was setting up the last day, which is obviously that should be the focus of our next question. So you had a call from your daughter, Jessica, panic over Grace's vital signs. Tell us about receiving that call and what happened subsequently. So that call was set up. The Grace's last day was the 13th. And so I'll set that call up. Eight o'clock in the morning on the 13th, the doctor called us. The purpose of the call was for us to give a pre-authorization for a ventilator again. You know, so we said no. And I think that set in motion the uh, taking Grace out. I'm going to say, you know, I have come to the belief that I think it was premeditated. And when I give you this sequence of events, you can be the judge. There was a 14 year ICU nurse in charge of grace that day. That's significant in this story. When the doctor called us, he said, we think great. We should uh, do a feeding tube. Grace had such a good day yesterday. I think we should do a feeding tube. Well, she really didn't need a feeding tube if they would have been feeding her, but they wouldn't allow Jess or I to feed her and they, they didn't do their job feeding her. So Cindy and I, unwittingly approved a feeding tube. Well, now Jess says she wants to go to take a shower. There's a shower in Grace's room. ICU nurse told Jess, you can't take a shower in the room. You have to go home. When I was in the room, they insisted I not leave. So I showered right in the room. While Jess was gone, she comes back inside of an hour. While she was gone, they strapped Grace down to the bed for wanting to go to the bathroom. It's sickening. Yes. You know, so just process that. One of the attorneys we're working with asked me, Scott, do you think you would have been strapped down to the bed? And I said, no, I mean, they made her poop in the bed. And I said, no, I wouldn't have. So that Sunday, God got me up at three o'clock in the morning. I went through all the doctor's records again, 22 different reports. And I searched for one word, which was Down syndrome or two words. 
I found that they referenced the fact that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times during her her stay. That's ridiculous. They didn't wait for Grace's numbers to rebound. Now they put the feeding tube in, and they used that as they used the excuse of strapping her down to ratchet up the Presidex. Now the feeding tube, they ratchet up the Presidex to max dose. At 10.48 in the morning, she's on max dose Presidex. Presidex is used as a sedation drug to put people out for surgery. It's an anesthesia drug to knock you out. So Grace was knocked out now the rest of the day from that drug. But in spite of her being knocked out, they gave her an anti-anxiety med called lorazepam at 11.25. At 5.46, they gave her another dose of lorazepam. 5.49, another dose. And at 6.15, they gave her a two milligram dose of morphine. That combination of meds would have taken you and I out. It would have taken anybody out. And the package insert for morphine is so damning, it says specifically to not combine those drugs because it causes death. If you use morphine, you're supposed to monitor the patient bedside with the reversal drug. They did none of that. Now, Jessica is in with Grace. She senses Grace getting cold. She gets this 14-year ICU nurse outside in the hall. So can you come and take a temperature? Uh, My sister, she says, no, that's normal. Just cover with a blanket. Well, it's not normal at all. It's normal if you want to take somebody out. At 7.20, Jessica called Cindy and I panicking, saying, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping. I said, get the nurses in. She said, they will not come in. I've been trying. So Cindy and I screamed through the FaceTime call that Jessica had us on, we scream, save our daughter. They holler back to us, she's DNR, do not resuscitate. We found out through a detailed review of records that we did not get that were gotten by a second request that a medical malpractice nurse helped us write that the doctor put an illegal DNR on Grace at 10.56 that morning, eight minutes after he maxed out the Presidex. Jessica ran out in the hall during this window of time and a nurse had a computer screen up because she said, what's going on? And she said, the doctor put a DNR on Grace and we can't do anything about it. She estimated 30 nurses in the hallway at this point in time because of the shift change. Not one nurse stepped foot in that room from 6.15 after they gave her the morphine until after Grace died. We watched her die at 7.27 on FaceTime. It's hard to fathom being in this position, feeling completely helpless. And yet this issue with the DNR just strikes me as as so completely wrong on top of every other wrong thing that happened. You must have done some research into this. How could someone, some doctor, independently put a DNR on a person they have no authorization to do that? That's an outstanding question. I mean, and it even gets worse because when they said she's DNR, we hollered back, she's not DNR, save our daughter in that process. So how could they do it? I mean, it, it violated at least seven state statutes by doing what he did. So how can they do it? It's complete disregard for the law of bowing down to what is going on as uh, an overall agenda being implemented by the hospital system with, who knows, a fear of losing your job, uh, bonus systems. I don't know. I mean, obviously the COVID bonus system is um, making hospitals do things that are unconscionable. You can't make up this story. It's so egregious. Certainly part of a, a lot bigger agenda. But then the government through COVID has been able to unleash this agenda through bonuses to the hospital. They have immunity from liability. 
And then the third leg of the stool is most people don't have an advocate in the room. They were able to take grace out with us as advocates. So just process that. What do you think is happening if there's not an advocate in the room? You know, of course, it's substantially worse. So anybody who's had a loved one that has died in the hospital with COVID, you know, I would encourage you get the records, keep them, go through them, log your notes down, because if this eventually comes to a head where there's going to be lawsuits, well, we've got to have people band together. There's another piece of this that Jessica shared with us that mm-hmm. evening, which was there was an armed guard posted outside the room when Grace died. You know, so we don't know why I'm uh, suspecting to prevent the nurses from coming in. And we know it wasn't a guy just walking through the hall because after Grace died, Jessica laid in the bed with her until Cindy got there. And the armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the whole time. How we got clued into this is after everything was done, our pastor walked Cindy out in a wheelchair and one of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and walked next to her on the way out and said, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. So you, you get a comment like that. You know that there is evil taking place here. The medical professionals whispering, uh, obviously, below the breath, but telling you that they know what's going on here. And yet this hospital has, what, refused to meet with you to discuss the situation and what happened? They have. When At the beginning, it was maybe somewhat naivety, but I wrote a long letter. We had a doctor review the records with us. We sent all the research. I had my daughter Jess write another supporting letter with all her details, thinking that we're going to give all this to the hospital, hoping they can see, my gosh, we didn't, we didn't realize all this was going on, and an opportunity to repent. Yeah, obviously, we knew that night there was some shenanigans going on after we reviewed the records uh, we knew the first week of November that they killed her so then we sent that request to the hospital on November 8th on December 2nd they wrote back and said we're not going to meet with you I guess the big question that's weighing on me is have you obtained legal assistance in this because it seems like that there really needs to be justice here Scott and I don't know how else you would get it outside of going full-on through the legal system Another great question. I mean, we've we've had the many blessings have happened, doors open that you can't make up unless God's involved. So one of the doors that opened was an introduction to Tom Renz. Tom fell in love with Grace. He's been quite helpful. And it could be that there's going to be a justice phase. Tom has certainly uh, been behind that. And I think that the doors are opening up very quickly that that could happen. Uh, we'll see. I mean, we'll walk through them as God allows. You know, the real justice, though, isn't courts. Yes. You know, the, the justice in a court would help in that it would stop this. We've already said we're not going to take any money, so it isn't about money. Uh, so we would be willing to pursue this to stop this behavior. And I think that's a, a reasonable thing that the justice system can be used for. But the real justice in this case is if the doctor and nurse who did this repented. And the reason I say that is because you don't wish eternity in hell on your worst enemy. And, you know, this is no good. And and that applies to all the doctors and nurses that are doing this across the country. Finally, would you help us, Scott, understand what you've heard from other people? I would imagine there's been an outpouring of communication from people who have been in similar circumstances here. What are you hearing from them? 
that's been one of the fantastic pieces of this. I'm shocked at how many people reach out to us. Our website, which is ouramazinggrace.net, has a place for people to put their stories. So they send me their stories, they send comments, and I respond to every story, every comment. And uh, my wife and daughter are also doing the same via, we now have a Facebook presence with Grace's story. And you know, the the support and the stories are unbelievable. Some of the stories are worse than Grace's. You know, Grace's is terrible. This is a common theme. We've been introduced to so many people that you can't uh, believe it. I mean, these doors that are opening up where it shows these stories nationwide that are happening. This is a common theme. Uh, one of the things I found out last week is the research is starting to come out where, where people are, are connecting the dots as to statistically how are things shaking out. And one of the statistics that came out about a week ago was that disabled women during COVID were 11 times more likely to die in a hospital. Mm. So just process that. Why is that? And I believe there's a genocide going on as the dots that I've connected. Scott Char, you are helping so many others and probably people. You'll never know this side of heaven by telling the truth about this. It's a brave thing to do, and I know you know it's the right thing to do. Thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. <laughs>